This morning, listening to you all sing and to hear Harry's passion, I think there's no need for a message on encouragement. You're already encouraged. But in case you're not, in case uh, tomorrow comes and you find out that I need some encouragement, then we'll talk about encouragement today. This is the last of our messages on the one another sayings in Scripture. And it's a fitting place to conclude because it requires us together to gather before God as one community. As we love one another, honor, accept, admonish, welcome, submit to and forgive each other in Christ. Now at some point in your life, you will need to be encouraged. It may even be right now. If you come to the church and you say, I need some encouragement, it's been a tough week. It could be tomorrow, next day, next month, but all of us will need to be encouraged. The reality of life is that uh, we all face difficulties, challenges, struggles, and we all experience some of joy and contentment when everything seems to go just right. The question is not really about whether or not we need it to be encouraged, but the question is how can we be encouraged? And how can we encourage each other? Learning how to live in encouragement, to receive and give it away, is the focus of today and this morning. Encouragement means lots of different things. It means to give somebody support. It means to give somebody some help when they need it. It means to cheer somebody, be a cheerleader, to encourage them, to spur them on when they need that. It means to appreciate somebody, saying thank you. It means to strengthen and to help others. It's a sense of hope when we're uplifted, when we're inspired or motivated. But we don't normally associate encouragement with an offering made on our behalf. When we step back, we look at life from God's perspective, not our own, we begin to see why Encouragement is directly founded on a sacrifice because sin, disobedience, is failure, hopelessness. It brings despair. It drives away encouragement and leaves only the residue of discouragement. So encouragement begins with an offering of sacrifice. That's where it begins. In our text for this morning, in Hebrews 10, we're going through Hebrews 10 to uh, 11 to 25, but the first part of our message is going to be from 11 to 10. Hebrews talks about two different sacrifices. And the first one is incomplete. Hebrews 10, 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Under God's old covenant, God made a way for sin and disobedience to be dealt with. It was through the sacrifice of primarily animals, lambs, bulls, goats, birds, that sin was both confessed and atoned for. The sacrificial animal died in the place of the one who made the sacrifice, the one who sinned and disobeyed. By carefully following the steps that God laid out, 
and provided for sacrifice, he was able to bring us to a place where we could be with him in forgiveness. He turned away from his wrath against us. But these sacrifices were always incomplete and temporary. The fact that the text says every priest stands daily shows there are many priests involved in the task of sacrifice. In fact, generations of priests. Imagine your dad being a priest. What's your job going to be when you grow up? You're a priest. And your sons and your sons will all grow up, become priests. And you'll be sacrificing animals for the sake of the nation, for your own sin, and for those of people around you. The priests stood continually at their work, showing that it never ended. There was never an end to sacrifices because there was never an end to sin. They offered the same sacrifices every single day, 365 days a week. Not just these, but others. If we go back to Exodus, way back to Exodus, we read this. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly, every single day. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and one you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure, about two liters, of fine flour mixed with oil, about a liter of oil, and about a liter of wine. Every day, this was to be sacrificed. This was in addition to this happening on the Sabbath. So on the Saturday, it would happen again. Beginning of every month, more sacrifices. At Passover, Day of Atonement. The feast days all were accompanied by sacrifices because sin needed to be dealt with. And sin never ends, it seems. And yet these sacrifices could never take away sins. So these sins remained. Every day, without fail, sacrifices were made. It's a sad, discouraging reality that there would be no freedom from sin because the sacrifices were needed. The stain of sin, while temporarily covered, always reappeared requiring daily sacrifices. There'd be no freedom from sin or from sacrifice. In the ESV Bible, there's a comment that it makes. It says, animal sacrifices symbolized the payment for sin, but they did not accomplish it. No animal was worthy of paying the price for a human being's sin before a holy God. The law assumes that atonement, removal of sin, and forgiveness occurs as something that's legislated. God made it a rule this had to happen. However, last year's sacrifices did not cover this year's sin, leaving a person still guilty and still sinful. To put it in a contemporary way, we all know about debt, credit cards, owing stuff. That's how our system works, how our economy works. You have to buy things on time. You have to pay off your debt. When I pay my credit card bill, what month am I paying my payment for? The previous month. Hopefully, you pay everything off in one go. If I use my credit card regularly, then I may pay my debt every month regularly. It would, of course, be wonderful 
to have one huge credit to cover all costs that I ever have in the past and I'll ever have in the future. See, what is required is a permanent payment to be free of past, present, and future debt. Even more importantly, what is required for sin is a permanent sacrifice that remove my past, present, and future debt to God. There's no way I or you could ever make that payment. You can't make this happen. We're left daily with a bill of our sin before God. And God said, you'll have lambs and sacrifices to atone for that. But it's only temporary. Because tomorrow you'll sin again and you'll have sacrifices again. This is how serious sin is. We are sinners by nature. That's who we are. How can we change our nature? How can we change what we are? Now, the encouraging and utterly life-changing news is that these twice daily sacrifices of animals was a situation that was only temporary, temporary solution that God had set up as he awaited for the time to bring the permanent solution, which is the second aspect of sacrifice in Hebrews 10, the perfect and permanent sacrifice. We're reading verses 12 to 14 in Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a lot of words in those, in those couple of verses. Compared to verse 11, we just looked at, instead of many priests, there's one priest. Only one priest now. That's Jesus. There's one sacrifice that has been made. No more sacrifices. No more animals have to be sacrificed. We don't have sacrifices here in the church. It's been done for us already. It's been paid. In fact, when the Apostle John first saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not who is taking away, who takes away. And so we come to a new sacrifice. It's perfect and complete. You see, the daily lambs that had to be sacrificed had to be without blemish. One-year-old, perfect condition. God expects the absolute best. He deserves the best. And so in the same way, Jesus is without blemish or default. In Hebrews 7.26 it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is the one we're celebrating today. We'll come later to the table, and this is the one that we are worshiping, our Savior, the one who has paid it all for us. Because of his sacrifice, sins are removed. He says, for by one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It renders us perfect and sanctified before God. Now, what does it mean by perfect? Well, it doesn't mean that we're sinless right now. We still sin. We still disobey God. We're still living in the flesh. 
But it means that Christ has fully earned this perfection on your behalf. And that God is applying it in his time in our lives. Our text says that we're being made sanctified. Being sanctified. This is both a progressive, ongoing thing as we increasingly reflect over time what it means to follow Christ. But it's also something that's positional before God. God the Father sees you as holy in Christ. That's your position. We don't think of ourselves in those terms. Not often. It seems kind of presumptuous to say, I am holy. Ooh, even saying that makes you kind of, you know, only God is holy. But God says, in Christ, I see you with his holiness. I've given that to you. I've poured it upon you. I don't see the reality of that in my life because I still sin. That's progressive transformation as he changes us over the course of time. The other aspect of being sins removed is that it's in perpetuity. It is forever. For by one single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed, sanctified. Christ's perfect sacrifice lasts forever. It is permanent and complete. Just as the Spirit says in verse 17 of our text, I'll remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. God doesn't look at you and remember your sins. You're forgiven. Often we don't even forgive ourselves. But God forgives us. So we move from a, a daily, incomplete sacrifice, the sacrifices of animals, to a perfect sacrifice of Jesus our Messiah, who gave himself so that we could be forgiven forever. But something else happens here too. It's not just forgiveness. We come to the table not just to celebrate forgiveness, but for something else. Our text continues in verses 15 to 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will, I will make with you after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on, my, on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and all their deeds no more. God promises a new covenant. This was back to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He told Jeremiah the prophet that a day would come when God would actually write his very law in our hearts and minds. How can he do that? The old covenant was based upon repeated need for sacrifices, which was governed by God's law. The new covenant, the New Testament, is based on one perfect sacrifice governed by God's grace. It is God himself who initiates and establishes the covenant with you. You have a covenant with God. You and God are in covenant relationship. He's, he made this possible for you to know him. And God's spirit foretold that this day would come, and it has. We're living in a new covenant in which God will put his law in your heart and in your mind. So God gives us a new heart and a new mind. He doesn't just forgive us. He changes us. He makes us brand new. God places and writes his will inside of us, giving us a new heart and a new mind that is part of a new creation, of being recreated in him. Not reformed, but brand new. If you accepted Christ, you're sitting here as a brand new person, different than when you were born. Because now God 
has placed within you the desire to know him, the desire to follow him, understanding of his word. And so Christ, at the very end of this, before we come to communion, can say, it's finished. In verse 18 of Hebrews 10, it says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is why in John 19.30, Jesus on the cross can say, it is finished. It's done. With my death, sin dies too. With my resurrection, life is restored. Thereafter, unlike the priests of old, Jesus could now sit down. When he made sacrifices, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was done. When you finish work, you sit down, especially if you stand all day. And all creation is bowing before him. Even his enemies will be made a footstool before him. You see, your encouragement always is always founded and rests on Christ's permanent sacrifice for you. One perfect, forever sufficient sacrifice made by Jesus for your sins brings you forgiveness, a new life in which God has written in your heart and mind his perfect will. In Christ, you are promised eternal life with your creator and father, with whom you will never, ever again experience pain or death or discouragement or evil. Christ is your encouragement. That will never change. It cannot be taken away. So how do we respond to this? One of our responses is to remember and to celebrate. And that is to celebrate communion. Before we do that, before I call the deacons forward, I want us to return and notice something. Back in Exodus 29, 38, 39. Now this is what one lamb you shall offer in the morning and one in the twilight. And with the first lamb you offer fine flour with oil and wine. Notice what the sacrifice includes. Requires the lamb, requires fine flour and olive oil and wine, the bread and the cup. You see, it's not that Jesus came into the world and looked back and said, I must copy this. No, these sacrifices were designed to imitate him. He was forever going to do this. And God is a foreshadowing of it, as an anticipation of it, as an example of it, had people sacrificed lamb with flour and wine. Hence, today, we celebrate the lamb with taking the bread and the cup. As Jesus prepared for his crucifixion, he gathered his disciples together. And we know it is the Last Supper now. It was during that evening that he took bread, along with wine, two elements that are required for the sacrifice. He partook as well. So that he became our sacrifice. We too now remember our Lord with the bread and the cup, just as he commanded us to regularly partake. And the bread symbolizes his broken body in the cup. He shed blood as his death permanently paid for all our sins. 
1432, John van Eyck painted this, or completed the painting of it. It's part of an altarpiece that is in a church called St. Bavo, or Cathedral of St. Bavo, in Ghent, Belgium. The church was founded in 942. And he painted this in 1432. I want you just to notice the lamb is in the center, the eternal sacrifice. And there are groups of people around the altar, angels immediately, and surrounding it are female male martyrs, Hebrew prophets, the twelve, and church, clergy, and servants since the time Christ had passed and rose. This is a pictorial image of the sacrifice of Christ. And it appears in this church as a perpetual reminder to everybody who come that even the beauty of art can try and describe what our Lord has done. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward and uh, set the chairs up as we prepare for, as we prepare for, um, for a communion. You know, one day I went into work and my hair was very short. And someone said to me, that's a really short haircut. And I said, yeah, I had a two-for-one deal and I took it all at the same time. (laughs) That's like today, we're getting two messages. One, looking at who Christ is and his sacrifice and the results of that, of our eternal forgiveness. And also, we're looking at how this affects us as we live today for encouragement. Encouragement begins with an offering. Encouragement is experienced continually through Christ. The offering that Jesus brings us, he brings us life with God, and this leads to faith, hope, love, and by these we are encouraged and can encourage other people around us. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkle clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, draw near to him. There's a series of of three or four let us passages in this text. Verses 11 to 8 talk about Jesus' sacrifice and all that it accomplished for us and it continues to accomplish in our lives. And that leads to acceptance. We can enter the holy place. What's he talking about when he says the holy place? In the Old Testament sanctuary, you had the outer area, which people could go to, the holy place. But there was an inner part, 
the Holy of Holies that only the priest could go once a year for sacrifice of his own sins and the sacrifice of sins for the people, the Day of Atonement. We are now allowed to enter there because of the blood of Christ. We follow Christ. We are in Christ in the holy places. And it's by the blood of Jesus. We celebrated that with the wine, remembering what that cost as he spilled his blood for us. So we are accepted. That gives us confidence in our faith. We have confidence before God because he accepts us and welcomes us and makes us brand new. In fact, it says in the text, by a new and living way. We celebrate in communion the death of Jesus. But it doesn't end there because we live in the life of Jesus. That he's resurrected, he's alive. He is the new and living way. And it is through his flesh and his blood that the way is made possible. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty to 51, it says, And Jesus cried out on the cross with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. At that moment, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Ever read that verse and wonder what does it mean? What, what's the veil, the curtain they're talking about? The curtain between the most holy place and the holy place was a thick curtain of fabric, 18 meters high, 9 meters wide. No one could go in there except one priest once a year. And now this was torn in two, symbolizing the access we all have to the Father that there's no longer a separation between us and him. We have confidence in our faith. We have a great priest over God's house. Paul says in Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We're accepted because of Christ and because of the faith we have in him. And so the text says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to the holy place where God is, with a sincere and true heart, with a heart full of assurance and honesty, confidence, certainty of the promises, that you are welcome and no longer rejected. You may feel that way sometimes. You may feel, man, I've blown it today. I said don't do that again to myself, and I did it again. How can God possibly accept me and love me? How can he he look at me? I can't even accept myself. And yet God accepts me because of what Christ has done. The confidence of faith. He gives us a new heart and mind. Our bodies are made clean, clean on the inside, free from an evil conscience. You no longer need to condemn yourself. When faced with sin in your life, you come to Christ and confess it. That's the response that he wants us. Because God doesn't condemn us anymore. You shouldn't condemn yourself. Embrace the forgiveness that Christ offers to you. That's encouraging. That's the confidence we have in our faith that we can go to God. You know when you offend somebody and you've hurt them and you see them and you go, oh, there's that person. I don't want to see that person. Um... I've hurt them. I know I did that wrong. We come before God 
And God looks at us and he says, come, confess to me. Give yourself to me. I have accepted you because of what Christ has done. Confidence in your faith. We're clean on the outside as he washes us with pure water. So we have confidence in our faith. We also have a confession of our hope. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Hold tightly to the grace and faith that he's given us. Hold fast to the story of your, your faith, the testimony of your, your walk with the Lord. Don't forget it. Sometimes we wander away for a while and we tend to forget, well, what did God do exactly again in my life? Oh, yeah. Now I remember. I was like this. I came to him like that. And he's made me a different person. Don't forget that. The confession of our hope. Banish all doubt. You're redeemed. Never doubt what God is doing in your life. Never doubt that he loves you. That's what the enemy does out there. The enemy says, look at you. You're a terrible person. How can God love you? Response? Christ died on the cross for me. That's his demonstration of love. That's all you need to say. That's what you believe. It's true. Because we have hope in Christ, who is our promise. Christ is your promise. He is your guarantee. Not your mutual funds. Not the next job. Not your spouse. Not the fact that your child's going to grow up to be rich and take care of you in your old age. I'm speaking to this group over here. No need to fear judgment. No need to fear death. Because Christ has purchased and ransomed you to belong to God. That's who you are. That's encouraging. Our confidence and faith, our confession of hope. Because Christ is faithful forever. A new and living way. He sacrificed himself and now he sits on his throne next to God, the Father. Bringing everything in the world and in history to its climax. He's in charge. He's sovereign. If he accepts you, then what the world says or what you say about yourself doesn't matter because he loves you and accepts you. So our confidence and faith, our confession of hope, and our consistency of love. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds or good works. Let us consider. We draw near. We hold fast. And we consider. What does it mean to consider something? It means to look for, to search, to ponder, to think about. And what are we supposed to be pondering and considering? We're looking for ways to do what? To stir up each other, to encourage each other to love and do good works. Sometimes we need that encouragement. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's worth it doing the right thing. So they come along each other and say, hey, it is worth it. Because that's what Christ requires of us. To allow him to fill us. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And we're to encourage each other to love and good works, to be consistent in living our lives. 
You know, it's funny in Montreal. I noticed this the other day. I was walking. I came to a red light, and the person who was standing at the corner did not cross the street. There's no cars coming. You could go. It's red, but it's Montreal. cross on the red. He stood there. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he stood there. The next person came to the corner. They did this. But they didn't cross. Then somebody else came. Didn't cross. Then I came. I didn't cross. <laughs> Why didn't they cross? Because somebody didn't do it. And they, they, they paused. Okay, maybe there's something. Maybe I should look before I do this. If the first guy had it then went, everyone would have went. We encourage each other by our example. How you live your life. It's not just for yourself, it's for people around you. How you talk, how you think, how you pray, how you treat people. It's an example. And it encourages others to do the right thing as well. And we get encouraged by our words to uplift people. The right word at the right time can be powerful, both to crush somebody and to lift somebody. Because encouragement means to lift somebody up, to pull them up. Sometimes you're the one who needs to be pulled up. Sometimes you're the one doing it. So we have our confidence and faith, our confession of hope, our consistency of love, and we have, lastly, our community of encouragement. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near or is drawing near. Being together encourages us to persevere until the day. What is this day that he's referring to? The day. It's the day that Christ returns when judgment comes. Persevere until that day. Helping each other. You know, have you ever come to church? Come in the morning, it's been a rough morning. You come. Hey, I don't want to be here, but I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. And then you find that uh, just by being here, you're encouraged. Somebody's smile, somebody's handshake, somebody's encouraging word. Being together lifts us. It brings us encouragement. Just by your presence. Just say a word. Just smile. Encouragement is found within our community as believers. If you're discouraged, what should you do? Go to God. Go to his word. Go to his people. That's what he's provided for us, to be encouraged. And we're admonished in this text not to forsake or abandon meeting together. That's why we have community of church. One of the reasons. It's for our joy and encouragement to be together. God has also provided us another encourager, the Holy Spirit, Paracletos the one who comes alongside. Christ is in heaven, and he's sent to us his spirit, who fills you, who dwells within you, who lives within you. That's your new mind. That's your new heart. It comes from his presence within you. It's not outside. It's inside. He lifts us from inside as we allow him, permit him, influence in our lives. And we encourage each other with 
God's word, sound doctrine. I was listening to a, a sermon a long time ago by David Hawking. I'll never forget the story in his message. Somehow stories stick in your mind. But he had a, a neighbor who was Jewish. And she had a, a problem in her home, and it was a serious situation. And he said he came out of his door, and she was sitting on her steps. And uh, he sat down next to her, and he wanted to encourage her. But what would he say? Well, he turned to Psalm 30. He used God's word. And this is what Psalm 30 says. He wasn't quite sure what to say. He asked God, what should I say? And God gave him this word. I'll extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. You've encouraged me. You have not let my enemies rejoice over me, O Lord my God. I cried to you for help, and you did heal me. O Lord, you have brought my, brought my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord and his godly ones. And give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but a shed of joy comes in the morning. There are times we don't know what to say. And God says, I've already given you some things to say. Ask me and I'll tell you what to say. It's in the word. Be very powerful. And he ministered to this woman, this neighbor of his, simply by reading God's word. And she was blessed and encouraged. Now this morning you may not need encouragement. You may say, I'm doing great. It was a great week. The sun's out. I'm just on top of things. School's finished. Man, it's just, it's gravy drain now. Vacation's ahead. That's me in two weeks. Vacation's coming. Actually, I'm helping my parents move a whole house, so you can pray for my, my arms. So in a few weeks, you can pray for my encouragement, okay? But somebody here does need encouragement because somebody always does. That's just life. So how can we encourage each other? How can we live in encouragement? The first thing we discussed this morning was here. The table. Receiving and celebrating Christ's sacrificial offering for you is the beginning of encouragement. It's reminding yourself, I am forgiven. I am accepted. God has welcomed me into his household with a permanent, perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. Now, if you're in a situation where you've not given your life to Christ, that is the place to begin. That's always the place to begin. Drawing near to God in faith, our confidence in faith. If you're discouraged, remember Christ's sacrifice for you and remember that you're allowed to come to him, to draw near to him, to pour your heart out to him, to seek him. Remember that you are to hold tightly onto the faith that God has given you. You know, um, I said this before, but my, my sister had, had three kids, has three children that had three one was a year and a half and she had twins. And I remember her saying that her, her devotion time each morning was holding each twin and saying, God help me today. Amen. <laughs> she drew near to God. She needed encouragement. And God gave it to her. And she held tightly to the hope that she had in Christ. We're to stir each other up. You know, sometimes the best antidote to discouragement is to encourage somebody else to step out of yourself 
I don't know why that works, but it does. God does. Because we're ministering to each other. We're ministering to each other in community. So by encouraging one another in all ways to live for Christ. So encourage each other. Bless each other. Look for ways to minister to each other. That's what encouragement from Christ brings and commands us to do. So our series ends. This whole series ends. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. That's what one another is. One another means we're living in Christ together on this journey, wherever God takes us. Let us pray. Jesus, you have done everything for us. In your loving grace, you have come, Lord, to be in our midst and to take upon yourself all of our debt and sin and corruption and darkness and you've killed it on the cross. And you, Jesus, rose from the grave to new life in authority and in power and in grace and in honor. And we are encouraged, Jesus, that you are who you are, that our hope and our joy, our future is in your hands and no one can take us out of your hands. We give you praise and thanks, Jesus. Amen. As we go out from here to the world, those who trust in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround them. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Be blessed and God bless you this week.